You are listening to Pastor Fred Neal III of Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you will be challenged today as you listen to a sermon entitled, Count It All Joy, based on the book of James, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 and 12, recorded on Sunday, January 22, 2017. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Fred as he preaches. We're starting James. And I'm excited about the book of James for a couple of reasons. It's a great book. I'm sure, I'm sure many of you have already read it probably several times. If you, if you haven't read it yet, this would be a great time here in the next few weeks to, to dive into it personally. But corporately, there's a couple of things that excite me about the book of James. One is there's this thing in our culture called nominal Christianity, Nominal Christianity, maybe you've heard that phrase before, maybe you haven't, but all it really means is there's a lot of people who are Christian by name only. And so they say they're Christians, they would identify themselves as Christians, but there's really no evidence in their lives that they actually have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's very popular in our culture. In fact, I would say probably the majority of the people who identify themselves as Christians in America are simply nominal Christians. There's no evidence of their faith. One of the things I love about the book of James is that James goes right after nominal Christianity. And he proves that it's not really Christianity at all. In fact, one of the most memorable and cutting statements in the, in the book of James is in chapter 2. When he says in verses 18 and 19, But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. In other words, James is saying, you tell me you have faith, but there's nothing in your life to prove it. You have no works, is how he uses that word there. He says, I don't buy it. I don't think that's faith. He says, I will show you my faith by how I live, by what I do. Because belief without works is not really faith. He says, I can prove it. Look at the demons. They believe in Jesus, don't they? And they shudder. Are they saved? Of course not. And so James goes after this myth that, that belief apart from actions, belief apart from the works that validate that belief as faith is truly Christianity. He says that's not Christianity. Now let me pause here and just say that James does not teach that salvation comes by our works. That's a very important doctrine of Christianity, that salvation comes by faith. So he does not teach that salvation comes by works. He merely makes the point that genuine faith will produce works. That genuine faith in Jesus will manifest itself in the way we live our lives. And so that's, that's one reason that I love the book of James. The other reason I love the book of James is not for those who perhaps say they're saved, say they're Christians, say they're one of us and really aren't. I love that he confronts them and invites them to join us. But it's a great book for Christians. If if you will, this is somewhat of a pep talk for Christians. And I mean pep talk in a very positive way. 
to, to help maybe understand this, let me tell you a quick story. I help coach my stepson's hockey team. And this hockey team, it's a group of high school uh, students, a bunch of young men. And that age of, of young men, you have to work hard to keep them all headed in the same direction. And the other night, I was in charge of practice. And there's this one young man on the team in particular, one of the older fellas, who's he's just a natural leader. His problem is, is he's always leading people in the wrong direction. And so I knew coming into practice, I was going to have to deal with this. Normally, my role as an assistant, I just let the head coach worry about that. But I was going to be the only coach there. And so I was prepared for this, and we started practice. About 30 seconds into practice, he starts doing his own thing. Now, I've got 15 young men who are, are seeing the example that he is setting. And I very quickly come up alongside of him, and I get about this far away from his face, And I say, everybody here is watching you. Right now, they're thinking it's okay to do whatever you want to do at practice here tonight. On this team, we can't have that. I'm going to give you one minute to decide if you're in or if you're getting off the ice tonight. James is kind of like that. It's kind of like a coach that comes along and says, hey, if you're going to be on this team, this is what that looks like. If you want to be a Christian if you're going to be, if you're going to wear that jersey, if you're going to proclaim to the world that you're one of us, this is how you live. Antonio Brown had the same problem this week when he violated team rules and, and shot a live video inside the Steelers locker room. I'm sure most of you have seen this story. And so Coach Tomlin had to come alongside him and coach him and say, listen, you're a, you're a Pittsburgh Steeler. As a Pittsburgh Steeler, this is how we expect you to behave. And so for the next few weeks, the next couple of months, actually, we're going to be looking at the book of James. And I, and I hope that if you're a nominal Christian, if you're just somebody who says, I'm just, I'm just kind of going along with this thing. Um, you know, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. As we read through James together, as we study James together, you're going to be confronted with the reality that to be a Christian means you do certain things with your life. And I want to invite you to hear that as the kindness of God reaching out to you saying, I want you to come and join me. But if, if, if you're already, it's already established that you're a true believer, I want you to receive this as the coach coming alongside of you and saying, I just want to remind you of some things. I want to remind you of what it means to be a part of this team. And so that's, that's sort of what the book of James is like to me. It's a lot of things. That's, that's just sort of, I guess, how I see it in my head. You'll see it your own way as you go through. It's a very topical book. James kind of, he goes from one subject to another in, in sort of rapid fire fashion, and he moves very quickly on to the next thing and seems to, to leave the last thing behind. And so we're going to sort of approach it that way as we preach through it. As Pastor Scott and I deal with the book of James, we're going we're gonna to approach it somewhat topically. Uh, you'll notice that uh, uh, immediately in chapter 1, we're actually going to skip some verses in chapter 1. Because James brings up some subjects in chapter 1 that he's going to come back to later in the book. And so we'll bring those, those verses from chapter 1 into those later chapters. Also, that'll help us get this sermon series down to 12 weeks. And so that's our plan. For the next 12 weeks, we hope to be in the book of James, which takes us right to Easter. So that's sort of our plan. 
Let me tell you real quick a little bit about our author. James uh, is somewhat of a mysterious person. He just simply uh, identifies himself as James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's some, a little bit of debate over who this is. There are several people in the early church who go by the name of James. Most scholars would agree this is James, the brother of Jesus, who apparently uh, didn't even become a believer in Jesus until after the resurrection. But he would later go on to rise to prominence in the early church. And so he's a significant figure in the early church, if that's the James that wrote this letter. Our audience here, you know, uh, oftentimes we think about, well, who was the author of the book writing to? And how does that inform how we interpret and understand this, this book, this writing? Well, in the book of James, we don't have a lot of clear evidence. He, he identifies his audience as the 12 tribes in the dispersion. There's a lot of speculation about who that is and what that means. I think most of that speculation isn't really worth our time. Suffice it to say that this book, the book of James, the ultimate author of this book is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit wrote this for us to read and apply it to our lives today. So let's jump in. Let's look at James chapter 1. I want to read verses 1 through 4, and then, as I mentioned already, I'm going to skip ahead to verse 12, and I think you'll see why I'm including verse 12 uh, in this first sermon in chapter 1. Verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. That's our text for this first weekend in James 1. Our topic is trials. James quickly launches into his first topic. His greeting is one word, greetings. That's it. That's his greeting. And then he's off and running with his first subject. And so this weekend I want to point out four truths that are evident from this passage. If you have your message application points, I want you to follow along on there. The first truth that we see in this passage, trials are a sure thing. Trials are a sure thing. He says in verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. The fact that James begins his letter with this subject may be an indicator that his readers were already experiencing trials. It's, It's a possibly a big part of the reason why he wrote this letter to begin with. He cares for them. He knows their experience in trials, and so he writes to encourage them. This theme fits in perfectly with the rest of the New Testament letters. We see again and again Peter encouraging his readers 
Don't be discouraged by trials. God is testing your faith. Paul saying, you see the trials that I'm going through, but God is actually working them for good. This fits in with all of the New Testament letters. This fits in with the Gospels, where Jesus warned his followers that they would enter into heaven through great hardship and difficulty. The book of Acts is a historical account of the early church and the trials that they faced. The book of Revelation prophesies that in the end times, believers will experience great trials. The idea that you will face various trials as a Christ follower is perhaps one of the most prominent themes in the whole Bible. But James tells us to count it all joy. Count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. When, not if. If you are determined to follow Christ in this life, trials are a sure thing. You will face difficulty. Your faith will be tested. You will suffer hardship. 1 Peter 4 tells us in verses 12 and 13, Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter, perhaps aware of some Christians who are being caught off guard by the trials they are experiencing, says, do not be surprised. My message tonight to you is do not be surprised. Trials, those are a certain thing. They're a sure thing. They're going to happen. Don't be surprised, Peter says. And you come to a point in your Christian maturity when it's no longer surprising. But I think most of us don't start there. Most of us probably start at a place where we're surprised by trials. We become Christ followers. We're excited. We're we're glad to be a part of the family. We've been forgiven by God. And we think, well, this is just going to be great. Now that things are good between me and God, I'm just, the rest of my life is going to be joyful. And then trials come, often catching us off guard, often coming into our lives in a surprising way. Well, the message of the Bible is don't be surprised by them. As though something strange were happening to you. There's nothing strange about Christians facing trials. It is the norm. It is to be expected. It is going to happen. And so we have to come to this point where we understand this is how God works. Kim and I were just talking about this the other day. You know, we have a daughter with, with special needs, and, and we're, we're also involved in a ministry uh, to families who have kids with special needs. And so we have a lot of friends who, whom God has just asked, I would say, to walk a difficult road. And we know a lot of young people whom, whom God has asked that same thing. And I was saying to Kim the other day, you know, it seems like there's hardly a day when, when one of our friends isn't in the hospital or, you know, one of these kids isn't fighting another, another tough battle. It just seems like there's always somebody that we know who's really going through it. And if it's not, if it's not that, it's, 
It's maybe a new family that we've been introduced to who just found out that their child has a, a challenging diagnosis or, or, or their, their child was born with some sort of abnormality or disease. And I've just learned to say this is, this is how God works. This is what we should expect in this life. And even, even times to, to anticipate the good things that God is going to bring from those difficult situations. This is life. Which I think is what it makes it so unthinkable that so many so-called Christian preachers and teachers teach this, this false idea that Christians can somehow avoid trials if we just have enough faith. Or worse, if we, if we give enough money to their ministry that God will allow us to bypass the trials that are guaranteed in this Christian life. It's unthinkable to me that somebody could teach that. And it's heartbreaking to me that so many believe it. How can you, how can you so ignore or twist the Scriptures to believe anything other than what James is telling us here that trials are going to come. But in spite of that teaching, the fact remains that trials are a sure thing for Christ followers. They're a sure thing. Do not be surprised. Recognize the hand of God. Recognize that God, when He brings trials into the lives of His children, He does so to accomplish something. He does so for a particular purpose. And so let me answer an important question at this point. What exactly are trials? The next set of blanks on the map are this. Trials come in various forms, but have the common trait of testing our faith. Let's talk about this for just a moment. What are trials? Because James refers to them as, coming, as being of various kinds. He says in verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So James seems to have in mind here a wide range of things that, that might happen in our lives. But that all have this common trait of testing our faith in God. I'd say a trial really is anything that causes us to doubt either God's existence or his good purpose. This can be illness. This can be financial hardship. It could be divorce or unfaithfulness in marriage. This could be being unfairly attacked by someone close to you. It might be losing a job or or perhaps not getting a job that you had your hopes set on. It might be something like not getting accepted into a a school that you hoped to get into. It could be being opposed of your faith. It could be a lot of things. He says various kinds. These can be big things. They can be small things. Certainly, for many people, it's very serious things like jail. Jail. Or as we see so often in the New Testament and again being repeated in our world in front of our very eyes, beatings or even death for the sake of the gospel. These are trials. They are the testing of our faith, as James calls it. Times when we must choose faith over our 
feelings. Times when we have to, in spite of the circumstances we're in, put our confidence in who God is and what He has promised to do. And so these various trials, they come in big and small packages. And they come in a wide variety of trials. So having identified what they are, having stated that you're sure to go through them, let's move on to what you really need to know about trials. The next thing on your map is this. Trials are for your good. This might sound strange, maybe even unusual to those who aren't familiar with Scripture. It's a strange idea that going through something bad is actually for your good, isn't it? But to those of us who are familiar with how God works, this is no surprise at all. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, something good, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may become perfect and complete, something even better, lacking in nothing. That is what trials are for. That they would produce in us steadfastness. And that that steadfastness would lead us on to Christian maturity so that we would become more Christ-like in every area of our lives. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Then let, let me go ahead and throw verse 12 in here too. This, this won't be on the screen, but just li- you can just listen along. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, the ultimate good thing, which God has promised to those who love him. Trials, those are for your good. Now, I don't pretend that any of us would, would ever, I think, be at this place where we just ask God to be tested. I think we're always kind of in that place where we're like, I'm kind of okay with how I am right now. <laughs> you know, if, if, the, if the way to growth is trials, then, then you know, let's just, let's just stay right here where we're at for now. But maturity does allow us to to perceive what God is doing in our trials and to see that he is doing something good. And so James' very first words after his brief greeting are, count it all joy. Count it all joy. Know that this is for your good. And I think that as we think about what does it mean to count it all joy, I want to talk in a second about what it doesn't mean because I think it's important that we clarify what it doesn't mean. But isn't that the idea of having this perspective that what you're going through now, first of all, is not the end. This is not the rest of your life. This is not the rest of your existence. God created you to live eternally. That's a very long time, if you will. So whatever trial we might face in this life, it's not our end. And so that's part of the perspective. But not only is it temporary, but it is actually working to accomplish something good in us. It's actually better to go through 
trials than to not. That's the perspective that God calls us to have through James. But what does it mean to count it all joy, and what doesn't it mean? I just want to say, I don't think this means you have to be happy all the time. Christians who, who think they have to be happy all the time are miserable, and they kind of make the rest of us uncomfortable. We don't have to be happy all the time because the reality is, is that sometimes life just really stinks. Sometimes life makes it impossible for us to be happy. A couple of weeks after Kim and I got married, this was in early 2005, just a couple of weeks after we got married and started living together, we both got sick. We got this stomach flu thing. She got it first, and, and she was sick for a few hours in the evening, and then we went to bed, and I fall asleep. I wake, a couple, wake up a couple hours later, and I'm like, oh, this isn't good. I think it's my turn. So I go, I go into the bathroom, and I sit down on the side of the bathtub beside the toilet, and I'm just waiting for the fun to start. And I'm sitting there, and, and Kim's first indication that, is, that something's wrong with me is the loud thud that she hears from me passing out and falling backwards into our bathtub. I come to, and she's, she's standing above me asking what's wrong. The next couple of hours, I'm throwing up and, and you know, doing other things that you do when you're sick and just having a real good time. And at one point, a couple hours later, I'm actually, I'm sitting on the toilet and I, and I got a garbage can in front of me because when you first get married, that's the kind of images you want your new wife to have of you. And things are just going splendidly well, and I pass out again. Only this time I fall forward, I break the garbage can, I hit my face on the door frame and break my nose, and I come to, and I'm just laying on the floor. I get myself together. A couple hours later, I'm, I'm just to the point, I can't even get up off the floor at one point. And I said, you, you better call uh, my parents, see if they can help me. Uh, get to the hospital. She had to stay home with my stepson, Chase. And so I go to the hospital, and they, they take me into the emergency room, and I'm, I'm just, I'm spent. I have nothing left. I'm dehydrated. I'm, I'm sick. I'm tired. And, and they're going to give me fluids, so they go to give me an IV. Well, instead of finding an artery, she finds a vein. And I see blood, my blood, squirting further across the room than I thought was possible. <laughs> and so this thing just keeps going. They finally get an IV in, and they give me medicine for the sickness, which somehow uh, is worse than the symptoms that the, the medicine was there to treat. I have this allergic reaction. And finally, they give me some Benadryl, and I fall asleep. Now, was I supposed to be happy when all of that was happening? Does counting it all joy mean that we should be smiling every time hardship comes our way? No. Of course not. I think that counting it all joy is something much deeper. Something much more valuable than having a smile on your face at all times. And I share that story kind of as a a humorous example to illustrate how hard it can be to smile sometimes. But at the end of the day, that story is just that. It's a humorous example. 
That wasn't the hardest thing I've ever had to go through in my life. That's not the hardest thing you'll ever have to go through in your life. The truth is that it was in that same emergency room that my grandfather was admitted through days before we watched him die. And the night that that same evening, it was that same emergency room that told us that my dad had cancer. It was that same emergency room that a few years later we'd go into with my grandmother hours before she would take her last breath and I would stand beside her bed and pray with her and read scripture. It was that same emergency room that I took my six-day-old daughter into when she wouldn't stop having seizures. It was that same emergency room that that they came up to me and said, we're going to need you and your wife to step out because these seizures that have taken control of her brain, we have to get them stopped. And to do that, we have to get her medicine. And to get her medicine, we have to give her an IV. And we've been trying and trying to get her an IV, and we just can't do it. And so we're going to do a procedure where we're going to drill into the bone in her leg and administer medicine to her that way. And you can't be in here when we do that. Is that same emergency room where that leg clotted and they said, Mr. and Mrs. Neal, we want you to step out again. We're going to do the same thing to the other leg, which later clotted, which prompted a helicopter trip to Children's Hospital. And as I stood outside of that same emergency room and my world was spinning and I said, God, What are you doing? What in the world are you doing right now? And countless times in the last 10 years since then, when we've looked at our daughter and seen her struggle and fight to do the simplest things every day, how many times have I said, God, What is this all about? Was I supposed to be happy then? Or does to count it all joy mean that we have this perspective as Christians that even in those emergency room situations, we know that God is big enough and good enough that even the worst, most painful, most difficult things we go through in this life are going to one day somehow be for our good. And that's just one category of trials that we face, isn't it? And I'll tell you this, maybe I didn't know what he was doing then, but I can tell you now exactly what he was doing. He was working. He was working in us so that through all things, as Romans 8 tells us, he's working for our good, that our faith might be strengthened, that we might become complete 
in him, lacking in nothing as he prepares us for an eternity of glory with him. He was, always is, working through our trials for our good. That's because trials, this is the last thing on your map, that's because trials are the intimate and providential means that God, by which, excuse me, God deepens our joy in Him. Let me read our text one more time as you fill in those blanks. Trials are the intimate and providential means by which God deepens our joy in Him. I'll read our text one more time. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Because blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. You see, the, the truth is there's a depth of relationship that God invites us into with him that only can be reached through hardship and trials. I don't know why it is that way. I don't need to know why it is that way. I just know that it is that way. We see evidence of this in our human relationships. People who you go through tough times with often become closer. They become more dear to you because you've banded together to get through something difficult. Marriages, if done right, grow stronger over time as we go through trials together. But even more than those human relationships can show us, there is a special and unique a, value, a unique relationship that we can have with our Creator and our Savior that becomes much more precious and valuable to us as we go through these times of trials. Times of testing our faith. That's the means by which God takes us deeper into relationship with Him. And let me tell you, before all of that stuff that I just talked about happened, I was one man. But when I came out of that on the other side, I was a different man. And my relationship with him grew exponentially more valuable and precious to me. It's not until God has broken you into pieces through trials and has put you back together in a better way do you really begin to understand what is meant by this? But once you've gone through it a couple of times, you start to recognize how God works, the goodness of his plan, the preciousness of that relationship. When you get to a point in your life when, when, when there is just no human being on earth that can console you, and you have no choice but to look to him and say, God, you're the only one left that can help me. 
You're the only one that can get me through. You're the only one that can put me back together. Until you've, you've walked away from every person that you, you had depended on before because they just weren't going deep enough into your soul where you needed them to be and you just found a time and a place to get alone with God. To say, God, you're the one. You're the one that broke this. And you're the only one that can fix it. It's then that you begin to understand what James is talking about. I may not be happy, but I can count it all joy. I can have confident conviction that God, in the end, will see this through till it's good. That God, in the end, will make all of this somehow worth it. That's how we learn to trust Him. That's how our love grows deeper for him. Until finally we can say, God, whatever you want to do with me, I know that it will be good when it's all done. That's the goal, to have that confident belief in him. Listen to 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9. It says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved By various trials. Let me just pause. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while you've been grieved. Not happy right now. You don't always have to be happy. There are times when you will be grieved. But in this you should rejoice. So that the tested genuineness of your faith. More precious than gold. That perishes though it is tested by fire. May be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. God, what in the world are you doing? Next time you ask yourself that question, Let faith remind you this is what he's doing. He's testing your faith so that, so that in you can be produced this thing that that will allow you to rejoice knowing that though sometimes we're grieved by various trials, we know this is just the testing of our faith like gold being refined in a fire. But even gold perishes. God is growing. He is establishing something in you greater than that. Genuine faith. A true love of Jesus. Even though we don't see Him now, we know one day we'll be with Him in glory. So what do I expect you to do with this? What do I expect you to, to, to take away from this? Well, well, first of all, let me say, if you're in the midst of trials right now, I hope that you know God is speaking to you. I hope that you know that he's telling you it's going to be okay. This is part of my plan. It's going to work out for your good. I'm doing something good in your life. 
You're not going through anything strange or abnormal. Everybody around you will go through it at one point in one way or another. So hang on. Allow your faith to be tested. Allow God to refine you. Allow Him to do that work of of perfecting you, in a sense, to make you more like Christ. So that on the other end of it, your relationship with Him will become more precious and more valuable to you for all of eternity. That's a gift that can never be taken from you. If you're not going through trials right now, then it's, it's good to understand how he works. It's good to know how God gets things done in our lives. And he does things in our lives in a lot of different ways. But sometimes, sometimes the only way to get us where he wants us to go is through trials. Learn to recognize this as how he works. Learn to realize that this is your good, loving Father in heaven caring for you. Verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Then let me just speak to one, one more group of people. Maybe you're listening here tonight. You're not even a Christ follower. Maybe you're a nominal Christian. You say, well, yeah, I tell people I'm a Christian, but it doesn't make much of a difference in my life. God is inviting you. He is inviting you to to really join the team, to to be a member of his family, to, to put your faith in him. And so maybe tonight the most appropriate thing for you to do is take that first step and say, God, I'm in. I'm going to follow you. I'm putting my faith in Jesus to be my Savior. I'm trusting in what he did on the cross and that my sins are forgiven because Jesus went there in my place. You know the story. Maybe tonight you need to take that step. And if you do that, at the right time and for the right reasons, he will allow you to face trials. But take heart and be prepared to count it all joy. Because blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. The reward for remaining steadfast for all of us is eternal life. It's, 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 we get him, we get him forever. We get the glory that he gives to us. That is the reward That is worth trading everything in this world for, is it not? To receive the crown of life. To have that glorious bliss forever. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.